from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God for you who are the people of God. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all the property. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second text from the Gospel of Matthew is one that we had last week, and you'll see this appear in the coming weeks uh, leading up to the season of Lent. The sixth chapter, verses 7 through 13, this is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, this is where Jesus is teaching on the principle of prayer. He says, when you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we prepare our hearts for the proclamation of the word, and given that it is a weekend that we celebrate the life and ministry of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I want to begin with a prayer that he wrote a prayer that he prayed before a sermon at the Ebenezer Baptist Church many years ago. And so I'd invite you now to join me in prayer using his words. O God, the creator and preserver of all humankind, in whom to dwell is to find peace and security, toward whom to turn is to find life and life eternal, we humbly beseech thee for all sorts and conditions of humankind, that thou wouldst be pleased to make thy ways known unto them, thy saving health unto all nations. We also pray for the Holy Church universal, that it may be so guided and governed by the Spirit, that all who profess and call themselves Christians may be led into the way of truth, 
and hold the faith in unity of spirit, in the bond of peace, and in righteousness of life. Finally, we commend to thy fatherly goodness all those who are in any way afflicted or distressed in mind or body. Give them patience under the suffering and power of endurance. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, as I noted, uh, we launched this sermon series on the meaning and the efficacy of prayer. And there is a single question that anchors this entire series, and that is this. What is the meaning and efficacy of prayer? What does prayer mean for us? What does it mean for God? What does it mean for the life of the world? And how is it effective? How does it change us? How does it change God if it does it all? How does it change the world? What is the meaning and efficacy of prayer? I hope that last week's introductory sermon provided some clarity and direction as to where we might be headed today and where we might be headed in the weeks to come. And during the series introduction last week, if you were here, you heard that I presented what I would call my, my working response to this question about meaning and efficacy when it comes to this first principle of prayer. And so I offered a, a threefold reply uh, to that question. First, the meaning and efficacy of prayer is intimacy with God. First and foremost, the meaning and efficacy of prayer is intimacy with God. It's how we make our way to God. It's, it's how we come to know who God truly is. Second, the meaning and efficacy of prayer is also transparency with God. Prayer is the place where we can be honest with God. It's the place where we can tell the truth about ourselves. It's also the place where God meets us and gives us a vision of who we might be and who God might be sending us to be out in the world. And finally, the meaning and efficacy of prayer is participating in the activity of God or participating with God in what God is doing. We discern in prayer what it is we're called to do and how we might participate with what God is already doing. So I ended last week's sermon by uh, sharing that we are going to take the Lord's Prayer over about a six-week period. We're going to take the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his followers to pray, and we're going to walk through it line by line, sort of inch by inch, and each week we're going to ask three questions based on this working response that I gave last week. And the first question is this. We'll take each line. First question, where in this text are we being invited into a deeper intimacy with God? Where in this line of the prayer are we invited to know God in a deeper way? The second question is, where in this text or where in this line are we being invited to practice transparency with God? Where in this part of the prayer are we asked to tell the truth? And three, where in this text are we being invited to participate in God's activity in our lives and in the life of the world? So we're laying these three big ideas, these three questions of intimacy, transparency, and activity on each line of the Lord's Prayer as Jesus has taught us. So Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. 
Those four words begin what is likely the most repeated prayer the faithful have ever recited in the history of the world. Jesus warns in this teaching about praying for show, about praying puffed up prayers that babble and go on and on and on. Jesus says the pagans think they will be heard because of their vain repetition. But God already knows what you need before you can even form a word in your mouth or before even a thought occurs in your head. God already knows. So Jesus is basically saying you don't need all those words. So when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. This simple four-word start to this prayer does not indicate that it lacks depth or profundity. Don't let the brevity of these four words fool you. They have the capacity to not only change how we pray and what we think about when we think about praying, but they have the power to change us when we begin to discern what they actually mean. So I want to get right into it by asking The first question, how does this opening line of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, how does this invite us to a deeper intimacy with God? The language to begin the prayer is striking because it's familial and it is relational. Jesus does not open the prayer by saying, pray then in this way, our omnipotent, immutable, omnibenevolent, and omniscient creator as we're talking about the attributes of God instead of the very being of God. Jesus says, no, pray our Father. Immediately we we recognize that this God is knowable in a relational way, not just knowing God's attributes, but knowing God's very being. That this God is knowable of course, there, there are some, and I've met many along the way in my ministry, in various churches I have served. There are some who struggle with the image of God as Father. They struggle with that. Perhaps their biological father was a tyrant or absent or deeply harmed the family. And the idea that God is Father is so disruptive or, or, or incompatible that, that they have a hard time praying that line. And I just want to acknowledge that. And I think as brothers and sisters in the family of faith, we need to hold space for that and acknowledge it. And I want to say to all of you who have had historically a hard time praying our Father, I'm sorry for the pain that you've experienced. And I'm sorry that that you've had such a heartache when it comes to your own Father, that it makes it hard to connect with God through this prayer. I also want to remind all of us, no matter if we find it easy to pray our Father or difficult, that the Scripture says God is spirit, right? God is neither male nor female. And the use of Father in this prayer has more to do with the analogical imagination of the first century than it has to do with anything else. For some, praying to God as divine parent or mother helps widen the lane in terms of our access or connection with God. The most important piece, however, through all of it is is an invitation into a deeper intimacy with God who is our one perfect 
parent. God is our one perfect parent, redeeming and resetting all the imperfections of our biological parents, even if we had great parents. A God who is our father, our mother, our divine parent. And I, and I want to invite us to think about what that really means. That the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, declares without stipulation, without qualification, without condition or limitation, that we are children of God. Children of God. It's what Paul says in the text that Jamie read for us this morning. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now the word Abba, which also translates literally as the word Father, refers to the intimacy a child shares with their father or a child shares with their parent. This is not just talking about the structure of the relationship. It's not just talking about the structure of a parent and a child. But it's talking about the intimacy that is shared between the parent and the child. And this God, our divine parent, loves us and cares for us and assures us and has unending affection for us. Our divine parent is with us in our affliction and and is working on redeeming that which God has allowed, even redeeming the greatest and inescapable affliction of death itself through the power of Christ's resurrection, a resurrection that we will all share in, in God's time. The opening words of the Lord's Prayer invite us to know this God as the divine parent, to know this perfect and unconditional love that God has for you and for me. And in, in a time when many of us feel uncertain, when many of us feel overwhelmed, uh, misguided, anxious, we affirm again today that our Father still draws near. That our Father loves us even still. The second question, how does this opening line of the Lord's Prayer invite us to practice transparency with God? Taking what I just said, one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith is how God is at once both imminent and transcendent. That God is both near to us and with us, and yet God is completely and totally wholly other. Carl Barth is the one who coined that phrase that God is wholly other, totally distinct from us. In the incarnation, when God took on flesh and dwelt among us, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we get a sense of God's presence and God's revelation to us. And yet God is still mysterious and unknowable. God can't be boxed. God can't be defined. God is beyond our comprehension. I like what Barth said when he he talked about the inability that we have as human beings to accurately talk about God, it's like a bomb that goes off in a town square and all the townspeople come out to see what has taken place and they look at the crater and they try to discern what has happened because they don't have a word for bomb. We don't have language, Bart says, to really talk about Jesus Christ and what God has done in the event of Jesus Christ. And so we need God to to reveal. 
And I think the Lord's Prayer leans into this idea. Our Father in heaven. In heaven. This heaven bit is not inconsequential. It not only speaks of the transcendence of God, that God is beyond our reach and our grasp, but it also invites us to tell the truth about ourselves that we're not in heaven. That we're not in heaven. That God is in heaven reminds us of of one of our fundamental convictions as Reformed Christians, that God is God and we're not. The God in heaven knows all. The humans on earth do not. The God in heaven is all-powerful. The humans on earth are not. The God in heaven is sovereign. The humans on earth are not. The God in heaven is not bound by space or time. The humans on earth have serious limitations. The God in heaven is eternal. The humans on earth will die. This part of the prayer invites us to be transparent and honest and humble about our own humanity. That we are human beings filled with strengths and weaknesses. We shouldn't pretend to be God and live as if we don't have limits. And by God's grace, by God's grace, this transparency will will lead us to a bold humility that recognizes our limitations, that asks for help, that shows up with less judgment of other perfectly imperfect human beings and less judgment heaped on ourselves. Finally, the the third question, and I'll end with this. How does the opening line of the Lord's Prayer invite us into activity with God? On this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I'm I'm reminded that one of the most powerful legacies of Dr. King's ministry was the way he sought to elevate what unites us as human beings and what unites us as citizens. Dr. King's theology was rooted in the notion that we need each other, that we belong to one another. No matter our race, we're all children of God and we should be treated as such. Of course, he was quick to point out Uh, And to recount our nation's history of racism, he was not shy to name the ways racism was made manifest in legislation and in culture. But he was also quick to elevate a shared vision of America, which he declared was already set as a non-negotiable standard outlined in the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. And he was calling on America in his ministry, in his public ministry, to fulfill its promise for all of its citizens. Now, in recent years, perhaps, and especially those of you who hang in academic circles, perhaps you've heard critiques of Dr. King and and his civil rights contemporaries, a critique for not doing enough or not being woke enough or not aggressive enough. Thinking back to my second point, right, all of us are human beings and none of us are are God. And Dr. King, like all of us, was not perfect. But it seems that his strategy and his worldview have been sidelined and largely ignored in this particular moment of our history. In our country, we've become so self-centered that we've lost sight of the common good. We don't even know how to talk about the common good, it seems. We've lost the impulse that we do indeed belong to one another and that we need one another. And and this is a problem. Let me be very clear about this. This This is a human problem that cuts across ideological lines. The the hyper libertarianism of the right 
and the hostile identity politics of the left has hurt us and continues to divide us and wound us. And both of these ideologies, let me be clear on this, are deeply committed to the idol of individualism. They're actually two sides of the same coin. Hyper-libertarianism and identity politics only have room for me. For me to be the center of the universe. For me to be autonomous. For me to get what I want. It has very little room for the we. And if there's any concern for the we, we see it made manifest in the notion that we are against them. That's how often we see the we is is in conflict and common enemies. And it's here that the notion of our Father finds its prophetic import when it comes to an invitation to participate in the activity of God. And I really want to home in on this word, our, our, our Father. Our Father, not, not, not my Father. But, but our Father. When the gospel writer John tells the Easter story, we, we learn that Mary Magdalene, you know this story, discovers the empty tomb. She mistakes the person she sees in the garden for the gardener and then comes to realize that it is the resurrected Christ. And you know the story. She, she holds on to him. She, she grabs him, won't let him go. And, and what does Jesus say? He says, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. I'm ascending to my God and your God. He doesn't say I'm ascending to my Father and my God. He includes Mary as part of the family. And there is something to be said about what Jesus says here and his relationship to Mary and their relationship to God. It's subtle but immensely important. My Father and your Father. My God and your God. They are siblings under the divine parenthood of God. There's not just a connection to God as divine parent, but there's a connection to others, to human beings who all are under the sovereignty of God, our Father. And as Christians, as Christians, we should seek to enhance this reality of siblinghood. Jesus prayed for nothing less than that. Remember what he prayed in John, that, that they would be one some believe that this is the only prayer of Jesus that went unanswered. That we lack this oneness. And oneness doesn't mean sameness. It doesn't mean homogeneity. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about the stories and experiences that have shaped us, that have shaped our identity, that have shaped our hopes and our dreams and our place in the world. It does, however, seek to see ourselves as part of the we. The we. Dr. King, you know this quote. Put it like this, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied together in a single garment of destiny. Dr. King said such things, not because of humanism, because of secular philosophy, but because of his prayer life and because of who he knew God to be and because of who Jesus Christ was and is forevermore. 
A Christ that calls us children of God and calls us to see ourselves as siblings in the world. And if anyone, if anyone on the planet ought to get this right or at least strive to get this right, it's Christians. It's followers of Jesus. After all, Paul said that we've been charged to embrace the ministry of reconciliation. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is prompting us to own and live out the hour in our Father. And what would that look like for you? In your relationships, when the other may pray differently or love differently or look differently or have had different experiences, what does it mean to live out the hour part of our Father? What would that mean for you? Friends, let us be brave enough to pray that prayer and brave enough to allow it to work on us into what God wants to do in reconciling all things to God's very self. Amen.